0: Gold finished the week with its seventh consecutive weekly gain, and it settled above 1900. I think maybe for the first time ever, but it is the highest close ever at 1901 spot 30. That is the spot price. In fact, since this is a Friday, this is the highest weekly close in the history of gold. Now, of course, it's not the highest monthly close because we still have another week left to go. In the month. But if gold just stayed where it was for the next week, then it would be the highest monthly close. Although I have a feeling that we're going to go higher. It's even possible that we can close the month above 2000, although that's a tall order. That's about a 5% move from here, which is a big move in one week. But there is a lot of momentum in this market. So I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. Certainly, we don't have an overabundance of enthusiasm out there. I don't see a lot of coverage of the move. I mean, you look at the financial networks, you look at CNBC, uh, they're really, you know, giving minimal coverage to the price of gold. They mention it casually, uh, you know, during their coverage of the financial markets. And I think when they talk about it, look, they had Scott Nations that came on today you know, Scott Nation said, oh, you know, it looks, uh, he thinks it's going to pull back. It's looking toppy. He's expecting a pullback. Of course, what else is Scott Nation going to say? He was saying the same thing when Gold was under 1100 He was saying it was going to pull back. He was one of the guys that gave me the most shit on CNBC when they still had me on because I recommended Gold. He said that, you know, that I was doing a disservice to the audience, that I was coming out there telling him to, to make a stupid investment, that it was dumb to buy Gold. Uh, below 1100. Well, here it is at 1900. And he's, you know, saying to be cautious. Of course, now he likes to pretend uh, that he was bullish the whole way. But of course, he wasn't. Uh, But, you know, it's interesting that they still have a guy like Scott Nations on CNBC because he clearly doesn't know anything about gold. But I guess that is one of the main criteria's to get invited on the network to talk about gold is that you demonstrate that you don't understand it at all. So he basically fits right in. But, you know, if you look at the gold stocks, I mean, yes, a lot of them made new highs today, but some of them did not. There wasn't an explosive move. In fact, gold stocks, as I said on yesterday's podcast, even though the price of gold was up about 15 bucks, gold stocks were down, you know, the GDXJ was down 3%. And today, gold was up another $15 or so, and all gold stocks really did was gain back yesterday's losses. In fact, the GDXJ didn't even do that. It didn't even rise enough today to recoup the losses yesterday. So as far as I can see, this bull market is still climbing a wall of worry because stock investors are too afraid to to buy because they're looking at gold at 1900 now and they were looking at it at 18 what 80 yesterday and they were afraid to buy. Everybody is expecting a pullback in the price of gold and we're not getting one. And I think it's a very bullish sign that we're trading up at 1900 and all the selling is being taken up by buyers because the natural inclination of people is to sell the high. Hey, gold's at 1900 double top. We got to 1900 in 2011. So you get a lot of people coming in to try to sell that high. But the market's not dropping because the buyers are taking whatever's for sale. You know, they're not running the price. They're sitting back and they're bidding the market and they're absorbing all of this selling. But eventually, the selling is going to uh, run out. The sellers are going to run out of gold. In fact, some of the sellers don't even have gold. They're shorting it. They're selling gold that they don't have. But the buying is going to continue. This is a major, major global move into gold, and it is a rejection of the US dollar. I mean, the two markets are moving in opposite directions, uh, but it's two sides of the same coin. Look at what happened to the dollar index today, right? The dollar index finished down for the fifth consecutive week, it closed below the March low. In fact, this is the lowest it's been on a weekly basis on a close since September of 2018. The dollar index finished the week at 94.345. It's down about 1.7% on the week. And that may not sound like a lot, but in foreign exchange markets, that is a huge move. People don't expect the value of the U.S. dollar, the world's primary reserve currency, to drop by 1.7% in a single week. But you know what? The dollar's got a lot worse weeks ahead of it. We're going to see some much bigger declines than this. And again, the weakness in the dollar is getting very little coverage on networks like CNBC. I mean, they mention it casually a few times over the course of the day, but not with any kind of concern. I mean, this really is the biggest financial story Out there, surging gold prices, uh, a, a falling dollar. This is a big deal. They don't get it. They don't understand why the price of gold is going up. They don't understand why the dollar is falling, and they don't understand the implications. They don't understand that this is going to put the Fed between a rock and a hard place, that this is the dilemma that they've been dreading to have to choose between allowing interest rates to rise sharply and collapse the whole economy, the whole house of cards that they've been painstakingly erecting all of these years with QE and 0% interest rates. They have to let the whole thing topple. Stocks collapse, real estate collapse, the bond market collapse, the whole economy implode. I mean, force the government to slash spending and, and all these terrible things that they've been avoiding by kicking the can down the road. They either have to choose that or they have to choose to let the dollar crash and allow inflation to ravage the country, potentially turning it to hyperinflation. CNBC, they don't get that. They're still looking at the weakness in the dollar as if it's a good thing, because the only time they mentioned the weak dollar was to talk about how great it is. What they're saying is that the problem was the dollar being strong, that the strong dollar was a problem. But now that it's falling, it's good. And again, that's exactly what I said They were going to say, that's how I describe the way the mainstream media would cover this story at first, that it's a good thing. It's going to help corporate earnings. It's going to help our exports. It's going to be really great. Yes, it helps corporations earn more dollars that have less value. What good is that? You don't want to earn more dollars that have less value. You want to earn more dollars dollars that have more value or the same value. But if you're ultimately earning dollars that have less value, then you can buy fewer imports. Remember- The goal of exporting is to import. So you want to earn a lot of foreign currency from your exports so you can buy a lot of stuff. But if the dollar is crashing, that means the amount of foreign exchange that you earn on your exports is falling. And so you can afford uh, fewer imports and your standard of living goes down. This is where we're headed. We're headed for a collapse, but the mainstream media is completely oblivious to what any of this means. But then that's another reason why you're going to continue to see the price of gold going up and the dollar going down until there is some type of crisis that's evident. I mean, so far, it's not evident in the bond market. In fact, if you look at Treasury yields, they're coming down to new lows. I mean, not quite the lows they were in, but this is a new low for the last several months. Look at the yield on the 10-year. That's down to 0589 we're less than 0.6% on the 10-year. The 30-year is down to 1.24%. I mean, so much for this V-shaped recovery. The bond market is telling you we're headed right back into a deeper recession, right? Make deeper than the one that we just supposedly recovered from. Now, of course, the reason that bonds are still rising in price and falling in yield in the face of this falling dollar is because the bond market vigilantes have been neutered by the Fed. Everybody knows that because the economy is weakening, the Fed is going to keep printing money and buying bonds. So bonds are being manipulated. So bond prices are not falling, and traders are buying bonds in anticipation of the Fed buying more. And so they're buying to sell to the greatest fool ever, uh, the Fed. But the market the Fed can't manipulate is the foreign exchange market. And that's where the dollar is falling. That's where you're seeing the concerns about inflation, about the Fed pursuing this reckless monetary policy. And as I said in the last podcast, the more dollars the Fed has to print to artificially suppress interest rates, the weaker the dollar gets. And we have a self-perpetuating spiral that we are going to be dealing with very soon. And if you take a look at the stock market, the stock market moved in the opposite direction this week. All the major indexes finished the day and the week in the red. The biggest losses were on the Nasdaq. Now, I mentioned Intel. They came out yesterday after the close and they disappointed on earnings. The stock was down about 16% today. Uh, That's a pretty big move in one day. Intel is now down 27% from its high, clearly in a bear market. You know what else is now in a bear market? Tesla. (laughs) Tesla made a record high last week. And today, it was down 6%. It's now 21% below the record high that it set last week, officially putting it back into a bear market. So it's possible that a lot of these momentum stocks in the NASDAQ have bust, and maybe this could coincide with a big drop in the dollar and a big rise in gold next week. Now, maybe if guys at CMC can put that stuff together, maybe they'll focus a little bit more on the rising gold price, and the falling dollar if they can tie that to big collapse in the stock market? Because it seems that that's the only market they're concerned about. And so maybe a crashing stock market might cause people to uh, pay a little bit more attention to what's happening in the foreign exchange market and in the gold market. But I think it's interesting, too, when you look at where the price of gold is relative to Donald Trump's inauguration, You know, gold has now moved up better than 50%. Since Donald Trump became president about three and a half years ago, that is huge. That is a big gain for gold under Trump, which is the opposite of what people expected. You know, I was talking on this podcast about how bad sales were at Shift Gold. I mean, I think it was 2017 or 2018, the worst years we've ever had uh, in the business. Now, I started in about 2010, so I, I wasn't, I didn't have Shift Gold for a long time, but after Trump became president, sales collapsed. They went down about 80 percent. And not just at Shift Gold, all over the industry. In fact, sales of U.S. gold coins, official U.S. minted gold coins, had their lowest year ever in history uh, for gold sales. So Americans basically stopped buying gold because They were so optimistic on the economy. Most of our customers, the shift gold customer, typical customer, is a Republican, and they were buying gold when Obama was president. They were really concerned about the economy. But as soon as Trump came in and they thought he was going to be a game changer and drain the swamp and make America great again, they stopped being worried. They stopped buying gold because they were optimistic uh, that Trump was going to solve the problems that they were so concerned about
1: Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best-kept secret...
0: Well, 50% gain since he was uh, uh, became president, that is a huge gain in a relatively short period of time. If you compare that to, let's say, the stock market, I mean, look at the Russell 2000, right? I talked about the Russell 2000 a lot. When Donald Trump was elected, the Russell 2000 was being touted as the best Trump play. I mean, I remember Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary, was going on CNBC, pounding the table. You got to buy the Russell 2000 because it was a pure play on domestic economy. Trump was going to make America great again. We were going to get tax cuts. We're going to get deregulation. And so you want a pure bet on America. Well, if you bet on America, you lost. You made a bad bet because the Russell 2000, yes, it's up, but it's up less than 10% since Trump became president. On an annualized basis, that's a pretty low return. Meanwhile, gold right, betting against America by buying gold, you're up more than 50 percent. Gold was a much better investment than the uh, Russell 2000. And Of course, gold stocks were the best investments he could have made, right? Buying uh, gold stocks was better than buying the Nasdaq. Now, yes, were there individual Nasdaq stocks that now, because of this bubble, outperformed uh, the gold indexes? Sure, sure. But, you know, what your odds are that you were going to get lucky enough to pick one of those stocks. But if you just bought the whole index of uh, NASDAQ, you're, you're better off just buying all the gold stocks, which is not the way people expected the Trump administration to play out. People didn't think it would be very bullish for gold and gold stocks, but that's exactly how it's been. But of course, the Biden administration is going to be even better. If you think gold and gold stocks have performed well under Trump, wait till you see how much better they're going to perform under Biden. But I wanted to put some historical context on today's $1,900 price of gold, right? Just kind of talking about where gold has been, you know, over the centuries in the United States, where it started and, and where it is now, because- Initially, the dollar was defined into law in 1792 with the Coinage Act of 1792. So that was the first act of Congress to legally establish uh, the currency in the United States. And the reason Congress did that was because that's what the Constitution authorized them to do. And I've mentioned this before, but I'm just going to go over it again for people who didn't hear an earlier podcast, but... If you want to see the the monetary provisions, you got to look at both Article 1, Section 10 and Article 1, Section 8. So let's look at Article 1, Section 10 first, which denies powers to the states. Remember, the Constitution is set up in two ways. It denies powers to the states and grants powers to the federal government. So the federal government can only do what the Constitution specifically allows it to do. Those are enumerated powers. The states can do whatever they want, except what is denied to them by the federal constitution. Now, that doesn't mean the states are all powerful because each state had its own constitution that limited the the power of their state government. So the federal constitution was not there to do that. Um, It it was just imposing some additional limitations on on powers that were otherwise broad and non-enumerated and left to the states. So looking at Article 1, Section 10, says no state shall enter into any treaty, alliance, confederation, grant letters of marquee or reprisal, coin money, emit bills of credit, make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debt. So there is what the Constitution says the federal government, the state governments can't do, right? They can't coin money, right? They can't take money and make it into a coin. They can't emit bills of credit, which is paper money, so they can't issue their own currency, and the only thing they can make legal tender in payment of debts is is gold and silver coin, but they're not allowed to make the coins. They're only allowed to declare uh, uh, the gold and silver coins as legal tender, but they can't uh, they can't mint the coins themselves. That power was given to the federal government in Article One, Section Eight. If you look at Clause Five, it says Congress has the power to coin money and regulate the value thereof and a foreign coin and fix the standards of weights and measures. Now, what does that mean? That means the federal government can take money, which would be gold and silver, because that's the only thing the states can make legal tender and make the coins that would then circulate as legal tender among the states. Now, there's nothing in Article One, Section 8, that, that allows the federal government to make anything legal tender. So it can't. It's only the states that can make uh, legal tender, and all they can make is gold and silver, but they can't coin money. The federal government does that, but all they can coin is gold and silver because if they coin anything else, it can't be legal tender. Now, in theory, they did coin other things. They coined copper to make pennies and they coined nickels uh, to make uh, nickel or they coined nickel. And But those coins were not legal tender. They still circulated uh, in commerce as a medium of exchange, but nobody made them legal tender. So bills had to be paid legally in gold and silver. You you couldn't just pay your bills in in pennies. I mean, if you wanted to, you could, but if the counterparty demanded gold and silver, that's what you would have to pay in. Now, all of these official uh, measures were defined according to the constitution in 1792 by the Coinage Act. And in that act, the dollar was legally defined as a weight of silver. The definition of a dollar is is 371.25 grains of fine silver. And that's Troy grains. That's what the dollar is. The dollar is a unit of measurement for a quantity of gold. And the reason they picked that number, 371.25 grams, is because that's how many grams were in the Spanish mill dollar. And so they wanted the U.S. dollar to be on par with the Spanish mill dollar, which was a coin that was heavily circulated in the colonies uh, before the constitution. And so it was a well-regarded coin. And so they were making a coin to compete with the Spanish mill dollar. And so it had the same amount of silver. Now, at the same time they did that, they also established a gold weight for the dollar and they fixed the ratio at 15 to one. So based on the dollar being defined as 371.25 troy grams of fine silver, gold was then defined as 24.75 grams of gold, right? And so the official ratio at that time was 15 to 1. So you needed 15 ounces of silver to get one ounce of gold. Now, you know, we've been talking a lot recently about the gold-silver ratio, which today is at 83 to 1 and which uh, in March was at a ridiculous over 120 to 1. But this puts this in some context. When we're talking about that ratio right now, it's 83 to 1. Back in 1792, the ratio was 15 to 1. So silver had a lot more value relative to gold back in uh, 1792 than it does today. And that shows you that silver obviously has a long way to go. Now, I doubt it's going to get all the way back up to that ratio, but I think it's going to get a lot closer than the 83 to 1 that it's at today. Now, those ratios remained the same all the way until 1849. So the dollar's value didn't change at all until the Coinage Act in 1849. There was a, there was a lot of pressure for more silver coinage. And so what they ended up doing is they slightly devalued silver relative to gold. So the official uh, price of silver which actually had been set at $1.29. That was the price of silver in the Coinage Act of 1792, $1.29. The official gold price was $19.32, right? based on the weights that they that they ascribed. So gold was $19.32, and silver was $1.29. In 1849, they changed that, and they moved the ratio 16 to 1. So now gold the price was increased from $19.39 where it had been since 1792. Remember, this is 1849. It's over 50 years later, right? The dollar has been exactly stable. And now they raise the price of gold to $20.67, right? And a new ratio was 16 to 1. And, you know, just so you see how that works, the coins that were in circulation, Right, at the time or following that act, right? You had the silver coins, which were the dimes, the quarters, the half dollars, and the dollars, right They were all made of silver. So one silver dollar, Morgan silver dollar, right are, are, are the ones that a lot of people know now that we have. You can get the Morgan silver dollar or the Peace silver dollar. All of those have the required amount of silver in order to be a dollar, right? And the gold coins, they were broken down into an eagle, right? A full eagle was a $10 uh, gold coin. You can get a half eagle, which was $5, and a quarter eagle was $2.50. And the largest gold coin was the double eagle, which was $20, right? So if you had a $20 double eagle, that was the same as having 20 Morgan silver dollars. And if you added up all the silver in those 20 Morgan silver dollars, right, relative to how much gold was in that one Uh, double eagle, you had 16 times as much silver as you did gold because that was the official ratio uh, between the two metals. But both were considered legal tender and they were both dollars. And that's where everything stayed until the Federal Reserve came in in 1913. Right. So this is 121 years after the price of gold was initially set at $19.39, right? 120 years, the price had gone up about a buck, right? From 1939 to $20.67. And that's when the Federal Reserve comes on the scene and starts printing money, right? But of course, when the Federal Reserve began to print money, right? It issued Federal Reserve notes. It didn't issue dollars. It issued Federal Reserve notes. Well, what's the difference? A Federal Reserve note is a promise to pay dollars. That's what a note is. And if you look at a Federal Reserve note, it says this note is legal tender, right, for all debts, public and private. But what it used to say underneath that language is, and is payable to the bearer on demand, $10 in gold or silver, right? So the Federal Reserve note was a promise to pay dollars. The dollars were the gold or silver that the Federal Reserve had on deposit. And if you took one of those notes to a Federal Reserve bank, you could get actual dollars, You didn't have dollars when you had a Federal Reserve note. You had the Federal Reserve's promise to pay dollars. That's why Federal Reserve notes are liabilities. They were a liability of the Fed, and those liabilities were backed up by their assets. What were their assets? The assets were gold and silver that they held. And you could take those bearer instruments on demand to a Federal Reserve bank and get your dollars for your notes, right? That was legitimate. The Federal Reserve notes started out as legitimate currency, of course, that ended. They're no longer legitimate currency, right? Richard Nixon ended that. But before Nixon ended it, Roosevelt intervened during the Depression, 1934. He devalued the dollar and rose the price of gold up to 35 right? So now it went from $20.67 up to $35 after Roosevelt basically confiscated all the gold, required Americans to turn in their gold, and then made it illegal for Americans to own gold. Right. But they can still own silver. Right. And our coins were still made of silver. And that didn't end until 1964. That's when they took all the silver out of our coins. And that's when all our, our coins became counterfeit tokens. Right. Because if you if you look at a, a coin today, whether it's a uh, you know half dollar or quarter, if you turn it on an edge, you, it, it, it's all it's all orangey because it's it's full of copper. Right. There's no silver in there anymore. They, they make these coins to look like they're made of silver because they took copper and they, they 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 basically plated it with nickel to make it look like silver. But it really wasn't right. They were just counterfeiting. In fact, the reason that you have those ridge marks on the sides of um, quarters and dimes is because they needed to make sure that people wouldn't scrape off any of the silver. They, they wouldn't clip the coin. Because if you had a quarter and you scraped off some of the silver, it would no longer be legal tender because it wouldn't have the required amount of silver. So it wouldn't really constitute, right? If you have a silver dollar, for it to be a real dollar, it has to have the right amount of silver. And if you scrape some of the silver off, then it was no longer legal tender. So the way you would know if somebody clipped the coin is you would look at the, the mill marks. And if it looked like they had been shaved, you wouldn't accept it. Because what people can do is they could shave a little bit of silver off of every coin, and then they could melt it down and you know make another coin or have some silver. But they didn't have mill marks on a nickel or a penny because nobody would waste their time clipping uh, copper or a nickel because the metal didn't have enough value. So when they made these counterfeit quarters and dimes out of nickel and copper, they put those mill marks on them anyway even though there was no need to put the mill marks because there wasn't enough metal in there worth clipping. They just wanted to fool people. See, initially, back in the 1960s, people didn't realize that the government made the switch. They didn't know that they no longer had real silver, right? That The government just conned everybody by debasing the coinage. But then ultimately what they did, and Richard Nixon, he ended up devaluing the dollar twice before he completely severed the link to gold, right? He took it, from $35 an ounce he devalued to 38 so he raised the gold price up to $38 an ounce and then he raised it again to 42.22 not really sure why he came up with that that number 42.22 and and then we just went off the gold standard but $42.22 that's still the official price of gold that is the legal value of the dollar by law that's where it's set even though the market price is now over 1900 the last official price was $42.22. But of course, what we did with our legitimate currency is we removed all the language that made the notes legitimate. All the the language that reflected the promise to pay. And so instead of the Federal Reserve note saying I promise to pay you $20, it promises to pay nothing. It's an IOU nothing. Instead of saying this note is legal tender for all debt public and private, and is redeemable in lawful money at any Federal Reserve bank, they, they cut off all that part. And it just says, this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. That's it. But nowhere on a Federal Reserve note does it claim to be a dollar. I mean, it has the word dollar written on it, but so what? You can write anything on there. I mean, it has you know the names of presidents on there. It doesn't mean that that's an actual president. What the notes claim to be our notes, just read it. It says this note. It doesn't say this dollar. This note is legal tender, right? And you know, my father used to give, give an example that makes a lot of sense. It's like, let's say you went uh, and checked your coat at a, uh, at a restaurant and you go in there and you give them your coat and then they give you a little piece of paper that's a receipt for that coat, right? And so you hold on to this little uh, coat check and then when it's time to leave, right, you give them the piece of paper and they give you your coat back. But what if while you were having dinner, they stole your coat? And then when you come back, you know, let's say that the check actually had something on it and it said, you know, good for one coat. You'd, normally they just, they don't have anything. But let's say that when you, when you gave them your coat, they gave you a note that basically says, I owe you one coat because they have your coat, right? And so then you come back and you give them this slip wanting to get your coat back, but it's not there because they stole it. And so they just scratch off IOU from the note and they just hand you back the note that says one coat and they say, here's your coat. Well, that's not a coat. You can't wear that. It's a piece of paper. Yes, but it says one coat on it. Who cares? It doesn't matter what it says. What matters is what it is. That's what the Federal Reserve note did with their IOUs, with their liabilities. People had Federal Reserve notes and the Federal Reserve note says, promise to pay you $1 or $10 or $20. And the dollars that it promised to pay were made of gold or silver. But then you go back to the Federal Reserve with the note and you want to get the gold and silver. And all they do is scratch off, right, Uh, pay you $10 in gold or uh, $20 in gold. And they just give you back their note. And it just says $10 on it. (laughs) What's that? Did you get your dollars? No. No. The dollars were the gold that they had at depository. They're not giving you the dollars. They're just giving you back a piece of paper with the word $1 written on it. They're giving you back the same note. They just crossed off all the language that made them liable to pay. But anyway, that's a brief history of how we went from legal money, constitutional gold and silver money as authorized by the U.S. Constitution to a Federal Reserve that initially issued legitimate currency backed by real money, gold and silver, to the situation we have now where we have a Federal Reserve issuing fiat currency backed by nothing, right? And now, if you look back at the dates that I, that I gave you, in 1792, right, the price of gold was $19.39. When the Federal Reserve was created 121 years later in 1913, the price of gold was at $20.67. It was almost the same price same price, because the value of money was very stable, right? In fact, from 1800 to 1900, the CPI was cut in half. So prices were half as much in 1900 as they were in 1800. So we had a 100 years of falling prices. And during that time, we had tremendous prosperity. We had the Industrial Revolution, particularly in the latter part, of the um, 19th century, after the Civil War, and between the introduction of the Federal Reserve, the U.S. economy boomed like never before. I mean, Donald Trump likes to pretend that we had the greatest economy ever. It pales in comparison to what was going on during the Gilded Age when we had sound money. But ever since the Federal Reserve came into being, the dollar began to decline. And now, 107 years after the establishment of the Federal Reserve, the price of gold has gone from $20.67 when it began in 1913 to over $1,900 today. That's almost a 99% decline in the value of the dollar. In fact, it's almost exactly a 99% decline if you go back to the original Coinage Act of 1792. So relative to what the dollar was worth in 1792, it only has 1% of its purchasing power. Right, That's why everything costs so much more now than it cost back then, because the dollar has been debased. Had we maintained the dollar's value all of these years, had we maintained it for the 107 years since the Federal Reserve was created, the same way we retained it for the 121 years before it was created, we would still have very low prices. We would still have enjoyed the benefit of falling prices. We'd still probably have a small government and we'd have a lot of economic freedom. It was a debasement of the money. It was the rejection of constitutional money and empowering uh, the government to run these big deficits, the Federal Reserve to print all this money. That is the reason that we've seen this huge degradation in our standard of living. And it's about to get a lot worse because here's the deal. The dollar has lost 99% of its value. There's only 1% left as measured by the value in 1792. And if we lose that last 1%, that's the killer. Because if we lose another 1%, the dollar is worthless. Now, I know a lot of people think, well, we're not going to lose another 1% from here, right? Maybe we'll lose another 99%. But that's practically 100%. But the point is, there's not a lot of value left for the Fed to destroy. And they're about to do that. And this is a major, major financial crisis that is waiting just over the horizon. This is not just a mere financial crisis. This is a currency crisis. This is a sovereign debt crisis. This is going to make the 2008 financial crisis look like a Sunday school picnic. This is going to make anything that we've experienced since COVID-19 look like a Sunday school picnic. Yet all of the experts, all the people that supposedly know so much, all the financial media, all these big economists, everybody in government, right? They are completely oblivious to what's about to happen. But at least the people who are listening to the Peter Schiff Show podcast know what's going to happen. They're going to understand what's going to happen. They're going to know why it's happening. And if you take action, you will be prepared for what's going to happen, which is probably the most important thing to not only understand what's going to happen, but to financially prepare yourself for what's about to happen. Oh, and by the way, I want to give a heads up. I am going to record a special podcast on Sunday because Sunday is going to be the 30-year anniversary and put that in quotes because anniversary is normally a good thing and this is not a cause for celebration. But it's going to be 30 years since George Bush Sr. signed the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, into law and it's been a complete disaster. I was very critical 30 years ago, even though I was much younger of this law. I was very upset at George Bush for having put his John Hancock on such a awful piece of legislation. But I am going to explain on Sunday why the Americans with Disability Act is so bad. And I guarantee you, if you're listening to this podcast, if you think the Americans with Disability Act was good. You will no longer think that after you're finished listening to my podcast. In fact, I would invite you to encourage any of your liberal friends to listen to that podcast too, because I pretty much guarantee you, if they have a brain, which, you know, again, may not be possible because brain and liberal don't necessarily go together, but if they do, I guarantee you that they will also no longer be in favor of the Americans with Disabilities Act after they listen to my podcast. In fact, I don't think any thinking person, once they are presented with the facts, could possibly support this horrible uh, bill. But anyway, that's all I want to say now, because I don't want to give away too much of what I'm going to put in Sunday's uh, special podcast. So just be on the lookout for that. And uh, that's it for now. Bye bye.